Welcome to the latest edition of the Mind Gut Conversation podcast, a place to learn about the latest ideas from thought leaders in the area of health, food, the science of mind-body interactions, and the environment. Today, I have the great pleasure to participate in a conversation with two very special people, Dr. Barry Kerzen, a physician and Buddhist monk, and Dr. Sarah Abedi, a physician in Los Angeles, involved in pioneering research studies on the therapeutic effects of psychedelic substances and mental disorders. Dr. Abedi generously invited me to participate in this special conversation, and you can watch the complete conversation between her and Dr. Kerzen on her Hidden Body podcast. Dr. Barry Kerzen was born in California, but has lived in Dharamsala since 1988. He will talk about his journey from his decision to become a physician to becoming a Buddhist monk. He serves as a personal physician to the 14th Dalai Lama, along with treating people in the local community with a combination of traditional Tibetan and Western medicine. Following his ordination as a monk by the Dalai Lama in January of 2003, Dr. Kerzen has traveled teaching and offering workshops in which he blends Buddhist teachings and his medical training. He has served as a research participant in neuroscience research into the effects of meditation on the brain. Dr. Kerzin has academic appointments at the University of Hong Kong and the University of Pittsburgh. He is founder and president of the Altruism in Medicine Institute and founder and chairman of the Human Values Institute in Japan. So related question. So in, in, in the West, we're sort of obsessed with the statistics of longevity. So the, the more the, the population ages, obviously longevity and healthy longevity is becoming like a, like a key measure. Um, do you think that Tibetan medicine, I mean, I've often thought about this just from the, from the meditation standpoint. So in the West now, you know, mindfulness is, is sort of a, a big strategy for various chronic conditions. Um, but it was never really developed for 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 health reasons. It, it was really for spiritual enhanced the, the whole meditative practice. And I was just wondering, like of all the aspects from the herbal medicine, from the mindfulness, um, do you think Tibetan medicine has an edge over the allopathic medicine and and Western medicine in terms of? longevity and overall health or is that just not a goal it's, it's the, the the goal is not the length of life it's it's, it's really you know the moment of life well you have to remember Imran that longevity from a Buddhist and a Tibetan perspective is infinite mm -hmm. because it's not just based on this lifetime mm -hmm. at least infinite until we become fully enlightened Buddha and then we continue to live so you know it, so, so it's a different concept in terms of longevity. But if you're talking about longevity of this life in particular, um, there is some early pilot work that needs a lot more uh, research um, that has looked at meditation and um, the uh, telomeres, the you know the tips of the, the human or, or the hips, tips of the chromosome, um, and if those telomeres uh, maintain their length uh, for years that seems to uh, 
be correlated with, whether it's the cause or not, we don't know, but it seems to be correlated with longevity. Um, and there have been some studies uh, that have shown, and there's an enzyme called telomerase, mm -hmm. which helps clean up the broken fragments of DNA in the telomere and hence keep the telomeres long. And so telomerase is good stuff in terms of longevity. And there's some pilots, some you know, small research, well done, that needs to be replicated, showing that levels of telomerase in groups of people that have been trained in meditation are double the levels of telomerase in the control group that it does not meditate, suggesting that meditation can boost telomerase and hence uh, can be associated at least with longevity. Whether that's true or not, I, you know, we need more research. Um, quality of life, as you've alluded to, is really important in, the, in, the, uh, in Buddhism. Uh, quantity is also important because if you've got quality, you want to sustain it as long as you can. So you want quantity. Um, on the other hand, if you don't have quality and you're harming people, it's almost better, almost better to have a short life and to create in your lifetime less negative karma. Mm. Uh, so that's another sort of variability in terms of uh, quality. Um, having an edge over allopathic medicine, now that's a tough one to determine. Um, you know, I, you know I, I think I just, you know, it, it would be hard to say that um, other than the caveat I mentioned in terms of meditation. It would also be hard to actually determine this because I mean, I remember from, um, you know, doing a long trekking in, in Ladakh, from Ladakh down into India, stopping at all these monasteries. The only thing that, that you saw civilization were these monasteries along the way uh, that you reached every evening. And <clears throat> obviously, you know, so the monks that we met on this, on this hike, I mean, they were all happy, smiling, radiating positivity. And then we often thought about is if if you live in that environment, I mean, it's so fundamentally different from, you know, what people in developed societies are dealing with from the constant bombardment with information, negative information and, you know, pollution and all these negative things. So <clears throat> um, it's it's obviously I mean, I personally think it's it's easier to live that Buddhist lifestyle in an environment that's compatible and conducive to it um, and the outcomes are probably better as well because the challenges on the body and on the mind are not as dramatic as they are now in our modern world do you, I mean, do you agree with that or yeah well I, I think the stress related diseases you know you'll find less of them among people monastics for example or for you know people that live a more contemplative <clears throat> lifestyle where they're less you know caught up in the daily stresses. Having said that, you know, even those remote monasteries uh, in Nepal, uh, you know, they're now getting, you know, cell towers and they're getting, yeah. monks are having cell phones and they're connected, you know, so things are changing. Um, but, I, you know, I mean, having said that, you know, th there's a lot to be said for a contemplative lifestyle where one is spending more time in the present moment. Uh, one is spending more time in, you know, trying to cultivate positive emotions and to transform negative emotions into positive emotions. Um, 
towards understanding what reality is and is not. Um, we're more in line with what the quantum physicists are talking about um, in terms of no objective reality that our subjective experience very much influences to a large degree our reality. Um, so similar, you know, that's a similar view to uh, for, from Buddhist philosophy and uh, similar to uh, quantum mechanics or quantum physics. Um, and then of course, compassion and unconditioned compassion, universal compassion, uh, the compassion that is based on the understanding that uh, we're all the same, you know, we get caught up in all the superficial differences, you know, gender and race and religion and family, and education and country of origin. And I mean, you name it, right? Um, and we get stuck in that. But those are, I mean, those are present, those are there, but they're not so important. You know, on a deeper level, we're actually all the same. We all want to be happy and none of us want to hurt. And the more we can recognize that, we can actually live a less stressful life, a more happy life and a more loving, compassionate life. Every time we meet someone, if we can remember she or he, just like me, just wants to be happy, doesn't want to hurt, automatically our relationship with whomever that person is, is going to be better. Even if it's a conflictual relationship, it'll be less conflictual. Um, so living by that simple mantra, you know, that we all want to be happy, none of us want to hurt. And that unites us all because that's true for all of us, even the animals just want to be happy and don't want to hurt. Um, so living that kind of a lifestyle uh, brings us more into the present, brings more joy, brings more love, compassion, the heart feels open and full. Um, and, and I suspect less disease, um, you know, particularly the stress-related uh, diseases. I mean, heart attack, we've, for decades, we've been talking about heart attack, you know, related to the type, type A personality, the person that's really high strung and very anxious and very angry. And, you know, so th these kind of things are opposite to that. So you would expect much less heart disease. And in fact, I mean, I, just more anecdotally, but looking at the Tibetan community in exile in India, the 100, 150,000 people, we don't see much heart disease. Um, it's very interesting. We do see some stroke, but we don't see uh, much heart disease. Um, and there is high blood pressure too, but not much heart disease. So that's kind of interesting, but I don't know the numbers on that, the metrics, but anecdotally, it seems like there's much less heart disease among the Tibetan ex Tibetans living in exile in India. One, one last question before I you know, hand it back over to, uh, to, uh, to Sarah. <clears throat> so the Tibetan exile community, I mean, what, what the Tibetans have gone through in a dilemma in, in, in terms of what normally would create anger and hatred in a lot of other um, groups, ethnic groups or individuals, um, Obviously, they they must have dealt with, and the Dalai Lama have has dealt with this in in a in a Buddhist way, which is absolutely remarkable to me, with all the things that have been done to them and is being done to them. And um, how how do people do that? Is is the meditative practice, contemplative practice, so powerful that you can even overcome these sort of most what we would consider natural human reactions to such an injustice? The answer is yes, Emran. The answer is yes. 
definitively, yes. Um, I would also, uh, and I'll come back to this, I'm not sure that our natural state is negative anger, you know, hatred, etc. Um, I'll come back to that. But let me ask, answer your, your main question. His Holiness the Dalai Lama practices Tonglen, which is taking and giving uh, many times every day. And he practices it. So it's it, what it is, is when we breathe in, we take in the suffering of everyone. And when we breathe out, we fill them with all the good stuff, with happiness, with uh, compassion and wisdom. Uh, the wisdom to know reality correctly and particularly our ego correctly. Um, and His Holiness does that, you know, not only for all living beings, but he also specifically does it for the hardliners and the people, you know, torturing the Tibetan prisoners in the gulags in Tibet, the prison guards. Um, he takes on their suffering and gives them back all the good stuff because he can see by, by the harm that they're doing, it not only harms the Tibetan people who are directly receiving the harm, but the, then the later, you know, the negative karma that they create that brings tremendous suffering for them in the future is almost unimaginable. Um, and he sees that clearly. And therefore he has genuine compassion for these tough guys, the hardliners and the prison guards. Um, and, and, and all of us practice, uh, the Mahayanas, we practice Tonglen. And we try to do that. We, part of that is you do it with your so-called enemies. You, know, you try to understand that behind their, their injustice, their hatred, their bullying, you know, their, their, uh, you know, um, their suffering, you know, and, and they're going to be suffering. And so you, on that basis, you practice this kind of compassion meditation. You do this daily. Mm -hmm. um, and that helps break down those artificial constructs of us and them, our friend and enemy, because those are artificial. Not only are they artificial, but they also change. So one day, someone might be our arch enemy, you know, someone that publicly, you know, behind our back, said some terrible things about us, right, in public. You know, then later, we may become very close friends and develop a trusting relationship. That happens. Uh, so that notion of friend and enemy is quite relative and actually quite, um, you know, it's off the mark in terms of reality. It's something that's it's fabricated through our prejudice and our biases and through our language and our constructs of language in terms of subject, object, and, and verb. Well, that's the way we then see the world because that's how our language is constructed. And we think in terms of language. Those are all very superficial, artificial. That's not the way reality is on a deeper level. So both from the point of view of compassion and then the point of view, as I'm just mentioning now, from wisdom, the shunyata, the emptiness, we recognize that you know, even enemies, um, you know, there's no such thing as an enemy. It reminds me what you guys are talking about. There is this part in your book, um, no fear, no death, that really helped me in residency. <laughs> um, Thank you. Do you, want, you, mind, you mind showing that or telling people yes, what that is? Yes. Uh, it? It's um, so Barry Curzon wrote it. You wrote it. <laughs> it's called No Fear, No Death, The Transformative Power of Compassion. And um, there's a part that really reminds me of what you guys are talking about. And I'm going to read uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama has been saying this again and again that the notion of nationhood is old fashioned. 
nationhood was relevant in the 20th century, but nationhood is no longer relevant in the 20th century. We are now so interconnected because of commerce and travel, because of education, because of communication, especially the internet, that national boundaries are losing their significance and reason for being. As we are all members of one human family, national boundaries become obsolete. And Emran, I feel like you touch a lot on this, you know, in your book, Mind-Gut Connection and Gut-Immune Connection, that we are so inter interconnected and just the health of us and our planet, everything revolves around this understanding that we need to acknowledge how interconnected we are. You know, the, uh, the realization that, I mean, I've often read this when I was younger, but never really, you know, viscerally connected to that, but, uh, you know, now in my age, I, I, I really feel it every day. So <clears throat> as we have all been all grown up in Western societies where the, the, the ego is such an important part of, uh, of the training that we want to have an accomplished ego. And this ego is obviously separate from, from the rest of the world and we want to conquer even in, you know, in the, in the Bible, it says you want to sort of, you know, um, conquer all the other creatures on, 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 on the planet. Um, but, but then you realize, I mean, that's one of the biggest illusions because it keeps you from seeing this interconnectedness. There is no such thing as, as a separate ego. It's, you know, once, once we, I mean, if we had a, you know, magic glasses that would allow us to see all the interconnections, we would say this, ego concept is a is a is a ridiculous construct because i'm connected not just to everything in my body every cell uh, my brain is is connected to every cell in my body and i'm connected to everybody around me both living and non-living um, so this this indoctrination that we go through you know in 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 the western tradition of of from earliest childhood on that we are this individual and individualism and we have to prove it to the world that we're different and more successful. You know, it seems to sort of be like the, the, the biggest obstacle to see this interconnectedness. So I would love to hear your, your, your comment to that. Yeah, yeah, th those are lovely comments, uh, Imran. Um, very beautifully mentioned, said. Um, the core of Buddhism is deconstructing the ego. And the reason we do that is to uh, broaden our love and compassion, to make it universal. Having an ego separates us from others. It becomes us and them. And the world is not like that because we all are deeply connected on so many levels. The notion of an ego is actually artificial because the notion of an ego is based on our body primarily. Of course, our mind, our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions. But where does the body come from? It, it doesn't really belong to us. Actually, the rightful owners of our body are our mother and father from the egg and sperm that united to then bring about this body. So we don't own this body. The rightful owners are our parents. And yet we cling to this ego so tightly as if it's the most cherished possession. Um, so the whole process of, of, of deconstructing the ego through understanding that the ego as it appears to us 
as everything appears to us, appears as if it's objectively real. You know, it's the old, you know, if you, if you didn't hear the tree fall in the forest, did the tree fall in the forest? Well, of course not. <laughs> if you say yes, that's objective reality, that there's a real forest, a real tree out there that's falling independent of us. But that's not the case, okay? Uh, so much of our reality is made up from our own experience, from our subjective side. And yet we take the ego and everything to be objectively, independently, solidly, uh, intrinsically real. And so deconstructing the ego uh, doesn't mean we don't exist at all, but the ego as we perceive it, the we ego as we understand it, that one is uh, made up, it's fabricated, it's false, and gets us into all the trouble. It's the troublemaker. You know, that's the one that when we see things that, or people or things that we feel close to, we want to embrace. When we see people or things that we feel frightened by, we want to push back and we have aversion, you know, or get angry um, or get jealous or we, you know, have revenge or all those things, negative, uh, aggressive uh, emotions. And that's all based on a false notion of our ego. Mm. So when we begin to deconstruct our ego, slowly, slowly, what happens is those reactions of aversion or attraction begin to lessen. And what increases is care about others, love for others, compassion for others. Um, so that interconnectedness gets back to what we were talking about a little earlier that, you know, we are, you know, we all want to be happy and we don't want to hurt. And that's something we all share deeply. And that's what reunites us as one human family. And nationhood separates us from that. It's okay, everybody that's in my country, yeah, I can relate to that maybe, although now we make other divisions based on which you know, political party you follow in America or other countries, you know, um, which is totally absurd, right? Um, but you know, it's within my country, you know, already my country, right? You know, we can, you know, see that everybody wants to be happy and doesn't want to hurt. We're interconnected in my country. But what about the country next door or the country around, you know? So obviously, uh, nationhood is an old concept, as His Holiness often says. You know, it may have worked bringing us out of, of, of uh, you know, what do you call fiefdoms or, you know, nation states kind of situation into a larger area where we can cooperate. But now, because of economy, because of education, uh, because of the internet, you know, information, uh, in terms of, you know, healthcare even, often is international, uh, on and on, uh, we have so much that connects us internationally that these national borders become archaic and they become obstacles. Yeah, when I hear you speak, I feel like I get this sense that there's this maybe ancient wisdom from, as you're saying, meditation, compassion, this interconnectedness of us, our microbiome to our body, things that we might not be able to see. And for example, meditation, you know, it was thought in Western medicine to be fringe science. And now we know the research is finally out. It's showing that it can change the structure of the brain. It can increase gray matter, increases resiliency to stress, just name it. And, you know, I imagine when you hear this fear, you're like, yeah, we've known this for like 2,500 years. 
And that's the thing about Western medicine is that it, at times I worry can be a bit too skeptical, you know, unless you show me the research, I might dismiss it. And, you know, I absolutely support evidence-based medicine and it's fundamental to all the incredible advancements we've gotten in our medical breakthroughs. But my question, and this is to both of you, is do you feel like there's some things that research cannot prove and those things that could be integral to maintaining our health? You know, I, I always wonder how we navigate. Maybe we can't navigate with research. Maybe in those moments, we have to be more anthropological. Um, what do you guys think about that? You know, one area that research is having a lot of trouble uh, researching and primarily because they don't understand the concept, uh, but is so important in all of our lives is our mind. And our mind encompasses our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, our intuition, and even deeper levels of mind that manifest during the eight stages of dying and sometimes can manifest uh, through intention and through practice in our meditation and can also for brief moments can manifest when we are sneezing uh, or when we're yawning also in sexual activity, um, but we don't recognize them. We can't use them beneficially. Um, so the mind is something that's not, you know, able to be looked at. We can look at you know, and, and psychology kind of looks at behavior, sometimes behavior that is influenced by experience, you know, cognitive uh, psychology. But um, generally, we don't have a clue or very, we don't have a very clear understanding of what is the mind uh, in Western culture. Eastern cultures have a much better understanding of that. Um, and that's an area that uh, can be very complementary when we bring Eastern traditions, health traditions, uh, healing traditions uh, into the mix of taking care of a sick patient um, that can't be really um, understood very well from the point of view of, of, um, of allopathic medicine. And the other point I think is a timing. You know, we often can, you know, through evidence-based medicine and, you know, we, we've come a long way and we can understand if this, this, this symptom is occurring and we have these backups in our you know, lab and imaging, we can say, yes, this is very likely the diagnosis and therefore this is gonna be the treatment. But what we don't know is why did this all happen today in the patient? Why didn't it happen yesterday or why doesn't it wait until tomorrow? And that's a question that can be answered much better by Eastern traditions uh, through karma. Of course, all the answers aren't there, but they have a better understanding of timing of disease and uh, than we do in uh, so-called Western or allopathic medicine. And then I think thirdly, um, you know, the whole area of introspection, the whole area of uh, mindfulness, the whole area of being present, which, which leads to health um, is something that isn't really understood very well in allopathic medicine. And I think this is very complementary and can be, uh, we, can, we can learn a lot from people, from doctors that are using these kind of approaches with meditation, uh, et cetera. If I, um, I mean, I totally agree with this. I mean, just making one, one comment. So <clears throat> in Western medicine, we, yeah, this focus on evidence-based or science-based 
Um, certainly, it's been very successful in understanding, you know, many basic mechanisms, um, particularly in, in in mouse models. Not so much. So we so we always take whatever we find in a mouse model of schizophrenia or depression that that's relevant to to the human brain or human mind, which I think is a huge mistake. And and it shows you how few things that are been proven in the mouse experiment actually translate into clinically relevant uh, information. <clears throat> and I mean, this could change in the, in the, in the future. I, I think brain imaging today is still a very crude tool, you know, to look at um, activity. So first it was structure, then it was activity, and it, now it's connections. It's still evolving. And I, I think we're still a far away away from linking complex phenomena of the mind with something that we can measure. And then, you know, in an experiment, um, manipulate and influence and um, train somebody and see what effect this has. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff in, um, I mean, we've worked with brain imaging for some 25 years now, and we still struggle to connect even simple things like pain with very distinct um, phenomena within the brain. You, you know, it's, it's, uh, um, it's much harder than people think. There's not a, like we, we used to be so, naive to think there's a brain center and there's a brain reach a, a pain region uh, that that's all not the case it's a very complex um you know network the brain that we still struggling to understand with system science and uh, the same kind of limitation that we have we have approached this with the the typical western reductionistic cause and effect um, glasses rather than seeing it as, as a complex organized uh, system that produces outputs that we you know much more difficult to study and to demonstrate so i would say right now there's a lot of phenomena that we don't have the science and i sort of agree with with, with sarah i don't think right now we really don't need it you know unless you want to we want to manipulate it or con convince somebody because the empiric evidence from uh, you know people that pursue uh, meditative contemplative practice um, is is so strong that you know that you just have to make this this leap of faith okay so i don't see it on the brain scan but i know um it is beneficial that's sort of my view on that you know yes i i, I agree with that um and again nicely put emran um evidence-based medicine uh sometimes has bias in it that doesn't uh, uh uh that we don't see very well one area is you know, studies that come up with uh, sort of, you know, uh, no findings or negative results often don't get published. There's a movement now to try to get those published because that's very important information, but generally those have not been published. And so that's one form of bias. Another form of bias is to do what's considered the gold standard, the double blind, randomized double, double blind, you know, kind of research um, takes a lot of money. And who's got a lot of money to do this? It's the drug companies primarily. And so you see this, you know, often because they want to, you know, the, the motivation is 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 profit. Mm -hmm. They want to sell more of their particular uh, drug. Uh, and so they'll do the studies and they'll show non-inferiority. Well, you know, give me a break. You know, that doesn't really tell us that much. Um, and getting back to the question that Sarah asked initially to both of us, um, in terms of evidence-based or so-called evidence-based, maybe I have to put it that way. Uh, I mean, 
please don't misunderstand. I think evidence-based medicine is, is really uh, the proper way to go, but it isn't foolproof. And there are biases you know, still there. That's what I'm saying. But if you look at anecdotal stuff and if you collect it, as you say, Sarah, over 2,500 years, you know, that has weight, you know, that has weight. And even though it's not a randomized, you know, controlled trial, um, double blind randomized controlled trial, it still has a lot of weight. And I think that if we just dismiss it out of hand, um, we um, lose a lot and who actually, the losers are actually our patients. I, I think that mainstream medicine has put up many obstacles to so-called complementary or integrative or alternative, you know, medical systems, and I think we need to really look beyond those, you know, um, boundaries that are artificially set, and not get frightened that we're going to lose turf, but work together with, you know, legitimate, you know, healthcare practitioners, doctors from other traditions, and I think, you know, we all benefit. Physicians benefit, nurses benefit, and of course the patients benefit. Yeah, remind me of that study, you talk about it in your book, um, about the effect of love and compassion on women with breast cancer. And I always think, you know, it would be so difficult to prove exactly what's happening that's making, you know, the breast cancer improve. Maybe you can touch a little bit up on, on that study, but it really reminds me of what you're talking about. Maybe yeah, it was a study that was done some decades ago. Um, it was looking at breast cancer, women with breast cancer, and two groups. One group, you know, both groups get the standard of care. You know, the, when, when indicated the surgery and the type of surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, and now we probably have to put in, you know, uh, biologics. Uh, you know, you know. And one group in additionally got TLC, got tender loving care. And I think a psychologist or a, someone like a psychologist, social worker psychologist, was sent out to the home regularly and just flooded them with love and care and kindness. And the results showed that the group that received the standard care plus TLC actually did better. You know, they had better numbers in terms of longevity and they had decreased in terms of mortality, in terms of morbidity. Um, and, you know, this makes a lot of sense to me and people that understand the power of love in terms of healing. The mechanisms, of course, I have no idea. Uh, you know, this is way beyond me. So, Carmen, so this is obviously has to do with the immune system and this, this field of, you know, what we call psychoneuroimmunology, how, how, how brain and um, emotional states have a profound effect on, on the immune system. I was sort of trying to link this with uh, studies that have come out of UCLA from um, a colleague and friend of mine, um, Steve Cole, who has who studied um, the effect of um, of, um, of happiness on on um, gene expression of immune cells, and has sort of compared two groups. One, which was so this this eudaimonic um, kind of happiness, and the other one, the um, the hedonic happiness that's so prevalent in, in you know in the West. So most people that talk about happiness think about material things and um, and I mean this is sort of amazing that how strong an effect uh, how how strong a difference there was between these two groups one the pursuing the the the, the, 
the typical happiness of the West and those that, you know, the eudaimonic um, um, uh, attitude and, uh, and, and, and philosophy. So clearly the immune system has, uh, the, the brain and the mind states have this major influence on, on our genes and the genes that regulate the immune, the, uh, the immune system. So I think we're beginning to really understand, um, um, you know, this, this, this connectedness between mind states, uh, trauma, gene expression, and how this affects the immune system and then ultimately how the immune cells and so I, 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 I mean, this is an example, I think, where we are beginning to really um, can prove some of these concepts that, um, uh, you know, that, that, that have existed and that in, in, in Buddhism have been, um, you know, taught. Um, but we're just at the, at the beginning of it. I mean, some of these results are almost too hard to believe. You know, like when I first read this paper and I heard him speak about this, it's, about, this is, it's, it's hard to imagine, but... Um, that, that the way we we feel happy or we feel negative directly gets all the way down into what our immune cells do. Uh, and if it's on a chronic level, obviously you increase or decrease your risk for some of for cancers or autoimmune diseases. Yes, I, I think, you know, what you say is very true. There's also some work that's been done in epigenetics um, and uh, there's a woman by the name of Kaliman. Um, I'm just blocking on her first name. She's actually a dear friend of mine. She's from Barcelona, University of Barcelona. And I hooked her up with uh, the work at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Richard Davidson, where I've been involved with uh, some of the research there as a, as a, as a subject. Um, and she has been showing uh, work with epigenetic changes uh, that are positive, uh, you know, resulting in positive uh, protein expression um, in terms of positive meaning healthy protein expression related to meditation and positive mental states. There's more and more of this work coming out. There's a book that was published last year, which is called Compassionomics, written by two docs. One's, they have long names and I have trouble pronouncing them, but you know, one of them is an ER doc and the other is a, has done more administrative work. And they were kind of, uh, they didn't really believe this whole area of, you know, healing uh, through positive mental states and meditation. But they were enough, you know, uh, they had enough, you know, kind of positive sort of doubt, you know, to, to, to uh, uh, so that they went and they did research. And, and in that context, you know, it's something that we talked about earlier. Um, I'd like to mention it here. Generally, allopathic medicine, you know, when we find someone sick, we, th we think our job is to try to help them get rid of the sickness and that's it, we finish. Uh, but actually that's only where we begin because we really want to help the patient, the person get to a state of well-being, a, a state of flourishing, a state of, uh, you know, where they, where they really feel happy that not excited happiness, but inner peace kind of happiness that you alluded to, Emran. Um, and, you know, that's really part of our job, Emran. You believe in the whole, you know, the, the flourishing state. But, um, you know, then another doctor who is trained in that, and we have to bring that kind of training into the medical school uh, curriculum. And this is so important um, to bring compassion as part of our training. Not only does it help prevent 
can ameliorate once burnout has been, uh, someone becomes burnout, doctors become burnout, but it also helps us find more meaning in what we do. So at the end of the day, we go home and we feel you know, meaningful. That was a meaningful day that, you know, my practice of medicine. Um, and then not to, you know, least of which to say the benefit to the patients if we're, you know, practicing this doctor-patient relationship, you know, using uh, compassion as kind of our model. And it can be done in a modicum, you know, we don't need a lot of extra time. This has been shown over and over again. I mean, it can help to make this, this, this comment. You told this wonderful story, how you got into medicine, um, you know, and, and then even more surprising that once you had gone through this difficult, you know, phase of, of training, did you decide to become a monk and not sort of reap the financial benefits? That's very different, obviously, from what we see today, that even from the parents' standpoint, you know, they, and hear many of these stories in Asia, that there's a sort of a, a, a record book that parents keep in, in Hong Kong of their children, what they accomplish in, in the first year of life, and um, all with the goal to get them into medical school, but ideally in, in the US, um, and then not just in any field of med medicine, but the ones, the areas that make the most money. So the procedure oriented, I see this in my own specialty, you know, 95% of the people that choose that specialty do it for, because it's, it's the most lucrative, you know, uh, direct path to wealth and um, financial stability. So do you think that this competition of these two um, forces, you know, on the one side, people go into medicine in this country, not, not necessarily in other parts of the world, mainly for the financial benefits and, 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 and security. Why would they want to spend their time learning about compassion? Because that's, they can't translate into money, you know? The irony is money doesn't bring happiness. Yeah, no, that. When I was in high school, just finished high school, I worked for a year um, with a man by the name of Fletcher Jones, who was the founder and CEO of Computer Sciences Corporation, one of the early, you know, computer companies. And he was a, uh, he was a, you know, he looked like a movie star. He was a beautiful looking man. He was a millionaire in early age, and then millionaire meant something, right? Um, and he would come into the office midday, he would fly in on his private plane, he would fly himself. And he had been divorced three times and he had an accident with his plane and he died. And his secretary, his executive secretary, who I knew very well, was convinced this was suicide. That he was a very unhappy man. Um, and there's a song, something about this, you know, I forget the lyrics now that, you know, where, you know, the person with all the money, you know, one day, and he goes and puts a gun to his head, you know. Um, now, I'm not saying that wealth always ends in suicide. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not, I don't mean to toot my own horn, but for about now, I think 32 or three years, I have not had a salary. Uh, I haven't charged a patient anything, zero. Except for a few months, about 20-some years ago, when I needed to make a little money, I did a few. I came back to the States for a few, few months from India, where I live in Dharamsala, and I did some locum tenens. Other than that, and they didn't pay me very well, by the way, but uh, other than that, I haven't charged patients anything. Um, now, I'm not saying that everyone needs to do that, 
But it is important, I think, to you know donate some of your time uh, to see patients for free, to do a free clinic, you know, a half a day a week or something. I think those are because you gain a lot from that. You feel like you're doing something meaningful. That compassion heals not just you know the patient that you're treating in the free clinic, but also yourself. And so that's so so important. And you mentioned Hong Kong. So I'm a professor in Hong Kong at the University of Hong Kong, HKU. And uh, you know, these medical students that don't make it to America, you know, that, that end up in, you know, the best, actually it's considered the best medical school in Asia, uh, HKU, Hong Kong, University of Hong Kong, uh, they're in trouble because each of these, you know, 150 or 200, you know, in the, in the, in the <clears throat> class, medical students and freshmen, each of them have been toppers in high school. Mm -hmm. Topper means kind of the British system. It means you were the best. Mm -hmm. you, know, you were number one, two, or three uh, on the exams. And so each of these 150 or 200 students, they're used to being a topper. Mm -hmm. And now they're in the class where everybody's been a topper. And they struggle with that. And it creates a lot of difficulty for them. So we work with them with compassion. Of course, they don't listen, but they do listen, you know. They don't want to show their friends they're listening, right? But they are listening. I know it because I know the questions they ask subsequently or questions I may ask of them. Or when we have inter, you know, when I do office hours, they come to see me and we talk. I know that some of that stuff they've been listening to. Um, so, um, yeah, I think that we need to change medicine and go back to where it, you know, used to be um, or where it should be in the future which is, you know, like the Chinese system where the doctors got paid when the patients did well, you know. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some kind of a system where it's uh, not, so your, your meaning in life and your value as a person and as a physician is not just tied to um, the amount of money you make mm -hmm. or in the academic setting, the amount of articles or the amount of, you know, awards that you've received. Um, but rather that they're also tied to your teaching, uh, to your, your ability to uh, create a satisfactory environment and a nourishing, uh, flourishing environment for the patient. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you were speaking in the beginning, you were saying, you know, you, you feel so happy and blessed to be a doctor. And a part of me almost took a little step back because I'm around a lot of doctors and I don't, at all generations, you know, early in their career, late in their career, and you never hear them say that, which is really sad. And I think something I've had an issue with um, all throughout medical school and in residency and still now is not understanding the difference between empathy and compassion. Mm -hmm. Can you explain a little bit about how important that difference is? Yeah, it's an incredible distinction that is not taught in medical school or residency. And um, I'm advocating that it you know, that it be there because it can help protect us from not feeling good as being a doctor, not feeling happy being a doctor. It can prevent us from, you know, all the stress and the anxiety around medicine. It can, you know, the depression that comes in, the burnout, the self-harm and even suicide, broken relationships or dysfunctional relationships, substance abuse, all that. Um, it's not a panacea, but it can help us to you know, try to navigate so that we don't get caught in those negative spiral down kind of scenarios. 
So empathy is feeling like the other person is feeling. Sometimes we say stepping in the other person's shoes. Now with empathy, we tend to be very close as the, you know, the description suggests in the other person's shoes. Um, and when we're too close, we're almost enmeshed to borrow from the addiction literature. And that's not so healthy to be enmeshed because we can be an enabler if we're too close and we're enmeshed. Um, so while empathy is wonderful, I don't mean to say it isn't, uh, our heart is open, we're caring, we really wanna help the patient, that's all beautiful stuff, but it can get us into trouble. If we're too close, inadvertently, we can begin to own the other person's pain, inadvertently. Uh, and if that builds and builds and builds, that often leads to burnout. We sometimes say, I hear people say, compassion fatigue, that's a misnomer. It's actually empathy fatigue because we're taking on inadvertently the pain of the suffering patients that we're dealing with. Compassion is a little different. It's an open heart. It's the willingness, the, the wish to help, but it's defined this way. Compassion is the wish and the action when we can to reduce or even eliminate suffering. So there's a cognitive element there that's not so emotional. When we get too emotional, we lose our clarity and therefore we lose all the different options that might be available to help the person to reduce or eliminate their suffering. Plus, it protects us. So it's almost as if we're taking a half step back emotionally when we practice compassion. We're not right in the other person's face. Um, there's much less of a tendency to take on the other person's pain. And the overall feeling of compassion is more of one of joy because we're helping. Of course, it's tinged you know, with sadness because we're touching the other person's pain, but we're not being overwhelmed by their sadness. With empathy, there's a tendency to be overwhelmed by their sadness and take on their pain. So making that distinction and you know, being aware of that, when you're with the patient, if you feel you're being too close emotionally, if you feel that you're starting to feel their pain too much, um, then take a half a step back emotionally, see more, have more clarity of what's happening, make better decisions for the patient, help them even in a better way to reduce or even eliminate their suffering. At the same time, protecting ourselves, feeling well ourselves, feeling that we're doing something meaningful and joyous in terms of helping the other person. So I you were talking about how you created Altruism and Medicine Institute. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Um, which is your nonprofit that you've created. Um, and on the website, it, the, the motto, you say, our healthcare system is more than healing. We envision healthcare professionals finding resilience and training, compassion, mindfulness, and reducing burnout, depression, anger, and frustration. This resilience and new life will automatically be transmitted to patients. By 2030, we aim to transform medical education to incorporate curricular self-compassion, compassion for others, mindfulness, and resilience as essential as anatomy, physiology, and pharmacology. So my question is, how do you teach compassion? Yeah, so now we, we've, with your previous question, we've kind of defined compassion, with the wish and the action when we can to re reduce or eliminate suffering. How do we teach that? 
So there's an indirect and a direct approach. The direct approach um, is to, you know, this brief mantra that we talked about, you know, we may not call it a mantra in medical school, but, you know, this brief kind of uh, attitude, which we can remember, which is that we're all the same in wanting happiness and not wanting to have pain. Um, and every time we interact with a patient or a colleague, a staff or a family member or a friend or anyone to remember just, you know, she or he, just like me, just wants to be happy, doesn't want to hurt. And if we remember that, uh, that relationship will improve. So that's very important in terms of the doctor-patient re relationship, in terms of the doctor-doctor, et cetera, et cetera, right? The, you know, close loved one relationships, et cetera. Um, we also talk about interconnectedness because compassion and interconnectedness are really two ways of talking about something very similar. When we recognize how closely we, inter we are interconnected, we are one family, one human family, that we want to care for them just as we want to care for those that we now conceive of as our kind of family, biological family, right? Which is very limited, you know, usually involves a handful or a few handfuls of people. But if we look at our, the whole, you know, the whole human family and see them as our family, see them as not different, similar on this deeper level, wanting to be happy and not hurt, then we just want to care for them naturally. Um, now, are we always going to do that? Of course not, you know, but the more we train in that and the more we do it, we also feel well ourselves. So it kind of, you know, has this self-fulfilling prophecy to it. Indirect, you know, we talk about areas we call generosity, uh, areas we call um, um, developing patience or tolerance. And that's a way to uh, transform anger. You know, so we talk about this whole area of emotional hygiene, which is transforming our negative emotions into their positive opposites. Anger into patience or tolerance, uh, jealousy into appreciation, pride or arrogance into humility. Humility, by the way, it takes a lot of courage and strength. Arrogance is weakness, often an expression of uh, insecurity. So emotional hygiene is another indirect way we teach compassion. We teach kindness. And now all these things I'm talking about are for the other person, but they're also for self-compassion. Because if we don't learn to take good care of ourselves, self-compassion, we're not gonna do as good a job taking care of the other person. Or sometimes we'll take very good care of the other person, but we forget ourselves and we suffer, right? So we need to practice self-compassion as a base. And from that, then we work towards compassion for others. Kindness, being gentle to ourselves. At the end of the day, after we've done, say, you know, a hundred things, I mean, we do a lot more, but let's say we did a hundred things, right? So maybe uh, 95 of them went well. We felt good about them. Five of them, uh-uh, you know, terrible. I wouldn't want to do that again. What do we think about at the end of the day? Yeah, we think about the five, don't we? We forget about the 95. So we try to teach people, in this case, medical students, remember the other 95 and it's okay to pat yourself on the back. I did a good job. You know, you don't have to go all the way into arrogance, but you can feel good about what you did. You don't have to just address the negativity. That's a way of taking care of ourselves. 
And there are many other ways that we uh, talk about in terms of compassion. We also bring the wisdom in a little bit without going into too much detail about the pitfalls of ego and how we can begin to shed some of the really harsh, you know, kind of barbs that stick out from our ego and make us a happier person, make our relationship with a patient much more satisfactory and in that way bringing more compassion to ourselves and to the patient. Wow, boy, that's a beautiful way to say that. Henry, I know you have to jump off at 11.30. Mary, I was gonna ask you one more question. Um, so I just wanted to, Emran, respect your time. Thank you so much for joining us. And Barry, if you have a couple minutes, I was just going to ask you one more thing and then let you go, if that's okay. Sure, that is okay, okay sure. Emran, thank you. Okay, thanks, Sarah. And thanks, Barry. It was, it, was it was a real privilege talking to you. Um, and thank you.